Well, there is a reason why we don't usually have me preach on a day that we have the Lord's Supper. And in about 45 minutes, you're going to understand why. And those who are leading the children's church are more painfully going to understand why. But uh, in the interest of being kind to them, let's jump into it, as it were. So we're going to talk about slavery today. Um, not Romans 6, slavery to sin sort of way. Uh, no, we're going to talk about the institution of slavery and consider especially the Roman system of slavery in the first century. And before we get going, I'd like to put before you a question. Should we even be talking about slavery? Except to say, of course, that it's an indefensible violation of human rights and dignity? I mean, how awkward is it to listen to instructions, as we will today, for a system of slavery, especially in 2022? Critics of Christianity would certainly cry foul and accuse Paul and us and the faith that Paul preaches with moral ignorance. They might say, Paul doesn't even recognize the evil of slavery. He's probably wrong about marriage and parenting too. Can we trust anything, he says? Isn't it because of verses like this that many in the church found an excuse not only to condone slavery in years past, but also to support it and participate in it? And to make things even more awkward, Paul's audience for these verses, not us, but the original audience, would have included both slaves and masters. We'll see in just a few verses that this letter has been hand-carried to Colossae by a beloved brother named Tychicus, and with him, another beloved brother named Onesimus. And those two beloved, beloved brothers brought two letters the letter to the Colossians, and the letter to a man named Philemon. In that second letter, we'll find out that Onesimus is in fact a runaway slave who came into contact with Paul and became a believer. Paul has sent Onesimus back to be reunited with his former master, Philemon. Does that bother you? Doesn't it sort of unearth all kinds of discomfort with the history of slavery? I mean, does that mean Paul would have sent slaves back to their masters in 19th century America? Everyone on the right side of that story agrees that slavery is evil. How can Paul talk about it like this? Well, let me offer some help. We must remember that while the Bible may claim to have timeless relevance and timeless application, it does not claim to be ahistorical. Colossians was written to be delivered to a particular house, in a particular city, in a particular time and culture. What Paul wrote still speaks to us and applies to us, yes. But the letter needs to be understood in its own terms first in order for it to be applied. We are so accustomed to basic, even inherent principles of interpretation that we may not realize that we don't need to wait for Paul to say something culturally offensive to us to realize that we need to make interpretive decisions, difficult interpretive decisions. At least they should be. In fact, we've been doing this all along, however. For example, all along, Paul has been addressing the Colossians. And strictly speaking, whenever Paul writes you in this letter, he means you Colossians. Look, for example, at chapter 1, verse 2. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. That's the audience, the Colossians. He's directly addressing them throughout the letter. Now, we have no problem 
understanding how Paul's teaching aimed at Colossian believers applies to all believers and therefore to us. And we have good reasons to make that interpretive step. But we have to admit that it is an interpretive decision. However, there are times when Paul addresses the audience in his letter and it doesn't directly apply to us. It's so obvious that we barely give it a thought. In chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, Paul writes, Just as you, Colossians, learned the gospel from Epaphras, our beloved, beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Now, I don't think any of us would make the mistake of saying, but I didn't learn the gospel from Epaphras. I don't even know the guy. How could he have told Paul anything about me or my love, for that matter? That kind of confusion is foreign to us. We naturally interpret. But when Paul writes in Colossians 1, 21 and 22, and you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We easily understand that what is true of the Colossians is true of each of us. And we don't need to do any interpretive gymnastics to apply these verses and to celebrate our own deliverance from sin, right? So how does this help us understand these verses today? We haven't even read them. I apologize for that, but let me get this out of the way. These verses, in fact, will show us the extent of the reach of the gospel. What I mean is that, in a way, Paul is doing the same thing that I've just been describing, but in regards to the slaves present in the room. Paul is taking his letter and applying it directly to them. In Colossians 3, 22 through 25, which we'll read in a moment, Paul is emphatically proclaiming that everything he has said to the Colossians applies to all Colossians, even those who are called slaves. That's not to say that Paul hasn't already addressed slaves. You see, when we complain that Paul didn't call for an end to slavery, we forget that he did. At least an end to any kind of slavery we would recognize. He wrote in Colossians 3.11, here there is not Jew and Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. As we've mentioned, there were all, in all likelihood slaves present, Onesimus at least, listening to Tychicus probably read this letter to the church gathered in Philemon's house. And you can bet upon hearing 3.11, they had questions. I dare say masters of slaves had questions too. And then Paul drops verse 17 in chapter 3. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wait, I'm a slave. Whatever I do, I can do in the name of the Lord? I can understand that freedom found in Christ is central to the gospel and that it applies to all who are in Christ. But how am I supposed to apply this newfound freedom if I find myself a slave? If I've become mere property, a nobody, a have-not? If I'm a slave, am I also free? And if I am, how do I do everything in the name of the Lord? And so Paul is clarifying the meaning of Christian freedom and responsibility in this most unlikely of places. So one question, we can put it this way, that Paul seems to be answer, answering is, can I apply doing all things in the name of the Lord to every situation? And one situation in particular that may have been a sticking point for the original audience was the relationship between master and slave. Again, in our sort of discomfort with the topic, we might miss that the Colossians themselves were squirming when this was read. So we don't need 
to condone or participate in a culture of slavery to need this lesson. If we can put these verses in that context, and if we can understand what Paul is saying to those slaves and those masters, I trust we can interpret and hear a message for us today as well. I'm going to read the passage in a moment, as I keep promising, but I wanted to get something else in front of you. It would be difficult to miss, as soon as I begin reading, that the translation that we're using uses the word bondservant instead of slave. I've been saying slave, they say bondservant. There are, in fact, three common translations for the Greek word doulos here, uh, used throughout the New Testament, and it's variously translated slave, servant, or bondservant. The intention of the translators of the ESV and other translations is to make clear that this one Greek word has a wide range of meaning within the topic of slavery. I think that we should take that point, yes, and be careful not to conflate ancient systems of slavery with our own modern notions. The system of slavery in the Roman Empire was incomprehensible, pervasive, and diverse. There, were, there was no racial basis for slavery. It could be anybody. Anyone from any background might enter into slavery voluntarily For example, to escape poverty or to pay off a debt or to make sure one's family is cared for. Or someone might enter involuntarily, for example, by birth or being captured in battle or by a judicial sentence even. And just as a person could submit themselves to slavery, there were several paths to regain freedom. In other words, once the bond was fulfilled, the bondservant was freed. Now, the most common path to slavery in Rome was falling to the Roman army. As empire expansion ceased, you can understand that the uh, influx of slaves dwindled. Either way, a majority of people living in Rome at this time were slaves, either currently or formerly. Wow. So Paul may have in mind, actually, slaves, which is why they use the word bondservants here, who have voluntarily entered into contract as domestic slaves and who notably functioned as members of the household. Remember, we are in the middle of Paul's so-called household code in uh, Colossians chapter 3. So all that to say that Paul is talking about a system of slavery that is foreign to us, And it would be a mistake to simply apply Paul's teaching to every situation that has historically been labeled slavery. Nevertheless, we can agree, I hope, that slavery, as much as it involves one person owning another, or that the other is less than fully human, that's flatly ungodly, unacceptable, indefensible. However, if we spend too much effort trying to distance Paul from slavery, we may end up softening what he's actually saying. I agree that Paul is not talking about what we readily bring to mind when we hear the word slavery, but if we try too hard to protect Paul, we may end up missing the point that the gospel reaches to the nobodies, to the have-nots, no matter how far the culture has gone wrong. In any case, we want Paul to say that slavery is wrong, but Paul is concerned with making an entirely different and more definitive statement. He is not saying that slavery shouldn't exist because all people are equal. He's saying that even if slavery exists, and it does, even today, slavery exists, Even if slavery exists, slaves too can be full members of the kingdom of God. Full members of the kingdom of God. And by reinterpreting slavery through the gospel, as he does, he is rendering it unrecognizable, as I hope we will see. 
But more readily, we can acknowledge that because gospel freedom is true in this, the most extreme of circumstances, it is true for you. Even if you find yourself a degree lower or a degree higher in the social system. And just so you know, um, I'm going to be using slave and bond servant sort of interchangeably, but I'm trusting that you understand I'm talking about slaves in first century Colossae, unless I say otherwise, of course. Let's do this. If you'll stand, let's begin by reading Colossians 3, 22 through Colossians 4, verse 1. And now you understand what on earth I've been talking about. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, confront us today and comfort us with your gospel. Make us aware of our prejudices, those we bring into relationships with other people, especially our brothers and sisters, and also the prejudices that we carry with us as we interpret your word overcome our pride, overcome arrogance, as well as any despair, any sense of purposelessness. Overcome, Lord, by the power of your gospel and the work of your spirit in us. It's in the name of the Lord of Lords, I pray. Amen. Thank you. One thing we could well learn right from the start is that Paul, especially in this section of chapter 3, is not dictating policy, but continuing to proclaim the supremacy of Christ and applying that truth. Even here, Christ is all. And by applying the truth of the gospel to the hearts of the individuals in these various roles in the household, Paul reveals how he clearly sees the building blocks of the kingdom in terms of people and personal relationships, not in terms of the policies and power structures of Rome. It doesn't make sense to Paul to use the Roman political system to build the kingdom, much less to build the local body of believers. Of course, Paul would support and even promote policies in Rome that were consistent with Christian principles, yes. But aren't we thinking from a very limited historical context if we expect Paul to behave as if he can envision affecting Roman policy, Roman law? we may as well ask why Joseph didn't call for an end of slavery when he was sold by his brothers and then sold to Potiphar. Why didn't he demand prison reform when he was wrongfully imprisoned? Paul is most concerned with changing hearts and minds, not just because of his insignificant political power, but because Jesus is most concerned with changing hearts and minds. If your heart has been captured by the gospel, it represents the greatest potential for change in the world and in your 
immediate culture. A political policy, however, represents a battle line. And for one side or the other to gain the upper hand is no indication that anyone has crossed from one side to the other, that any single mind has been changed, nor that any person's heart has turned to the Lord. It is good and valuable. And depending on what policy we're talking about, it may become an obstacle to sin, which is a good thing. Yes, it's even a victory, but it's not a kingdom victory. Remember, even the law of God was powerless to change the hearts of the people. To apply this principle directly to our passage, Paul could call for social change, abolishing slavery. Instead, he targets the hearts of the slaves and masters themselves. Changing the hearts of Onesimus and Philemon to be consistent with the gospel would have a greater impact in Paul's mind than changing the system and leaving Onesimus bitter and discouraged and leaving Philemon prejudiced and proud. And so, in a world of prejudiced hearts, and exploitative practices, Paul confronts the heart with the gospel. In our passage today, Paul begins this confrontation by showing how the gospel transforms obedience. Look again at verse 22. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. Fearing the Lord. So how does the gospel transform this obedience? To begin with, it reveals the true context of obedience. In our concern that Paul is even talking about slavery, we may miss the significance that Paul addresses slaves directly. That alone should be shocking especially if these bondservants are deemed nobodies by the culture. Paul undermines that system in a word simply by addressing them as part of his intended audience. What's more, they must have been the intended recipients all along. They have reason to celebrate the grand declarations concerning the redemption of believers because they are believers and the new identity as members of the kingdom of God because they are members of the kingdom of God. They can receive the warnings and teachings personally because by implication, though they are slaves, they are nevertheless people who are responsible for their own faith and obedience and who are free to determine their own behavior. Paul is not just saying, slaves, here's the part of the letter that's for you. He's saying, it's because all of the rest of the letter is true for you. I'm going to talk to you now. It was already unsettling that Paul would address wives before husbands and children before fathers. Unsettling to the original hearers, that is. But to address slaves before masters is especially provocative. Paul does name Masters, in this verse, you'll notice, only to clarify that they are merely earthly masters, in contrast, obviously, with the heavenly master, the Lord Jesus. So when Paul says that the masters are earthly, we should be reminded of earlier in the chapter when he called all believers to set their minds on things above. In other words, set your mind on your heavenly master. In Paul's letter to Philemon, he's even more explicit on this point. He writes that Philemon should receive Onesimus, in verse 16, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. So consider for a moment that the only reason that we can listen to Paul, I didn't hear any gasps in the room. I didn't hear any uh, noises of strong reaction. I didn't see any wide eyes. We can listen to Paul talk about slaves and masters like this. 
because of the gospel. And I should add, because of centuries of the influence of the gospel on not just our culture, but on the world. And what the world understands is just a shadow of the truth. This new and true context for obedience also transforms the motivation for obedience by putting it in context of the fear of the Lord. Don't look now, but trust me, the word Lord or Master is used five times in five verses, and we read five verses. To be clear, both Lord and Master translate the same word kurios in Greek. Paul writes, fearing the Lord, for the Lord, from the Lord, serving the Lord, and you also have a master, which is the same word, Lord. Even the plural of the same word is used twice, so we could count up to seven uses. But the plural is only used in reference to earthly masters. And understandably, our translators don't call them lords. But you could say, we have identified something of a key to this passage, I think. Paul is calling slaves to take their fear of an earthly master and all his selfishness and capriciousness and exchange it for fear of the Lord. In the logic of this verse, that's the reason why a slave can serve with sincerity of heart. Sincerity of heart means something like singleness of heart, as in an undivided heart. So he's not talking about merely dutiful service, but wholehearted service. A slave doesn't need to serve out of spite, pretending obedience by way of eye service, as it says, and fearing the consequences of the master's anger, lowercase m. The cure for motivation of a conflicted heart like this is to obey God rather than men, even rather than self. Paul prayed something like this back in chapter 1 again, verse 10. He prayed that the Colossians would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. But we can see explicitly in today's passage that this gospel prayer sort of cuts both ways. Obviously, it makes obedience to God primary. But we might ask, and I'm sure the slaves did ask, does it release us from all those pesky earthly duties and obligations? Paul's answer is no. While it is true Your allegiance to God serves as something of an escape clause if and when the worldly authorities call on you to violate your conscience before God. At the same time, it is not an escape from doing the right thing. As Paul says in Galatians 5.13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh but through love serve one another. I know he's not talking about slavery there, but the principle stands. Usually we would think of this concept in terms of excuse for committing sins. We shouldn't use our freedom to excuse us to do wrong, rather as an excuse here for omitting obedience. Paul is saying that an attitude that claims I don't have to do what anyone says because God is my boss, is not walking in obedience to the Lord. Nor is it the proper fear of the Lord. You could say being a Christian is a bad reason for doing bad work. If God wants a first century bondservant in Colossae to serve his master. What authorities have we been placed under? And how should we serve them? You see the argument from the greater to the lesser? God expects his people, 
to be characterized by obedience. As we've said, there is a time for refusing to obey, yes. But even then, it must be to obey the call of the Father. If we relate too well with our revolutionary roots and revolutionary tendencies, we should meditate long on whether our motivation is to please the Lord or just to please ourselves. From the world's perspective, a slave should be defeated, hopeless, joyless. But putting obedience into perspective, slaves can have victory and freedom to follow and serve the Lord. Where there was formerly bitterness, resentment, and the fear of a master's anger, now there's an undivided heart seeking the joy of the Lord. And those of us who are not slaves, I hope that's all of us, have the same assurance if we also see that we are slaves to the Lord and children of the King. Allow me a word on the fear of the Lord here. Think of it like this. It's the one who knows the Lord most intimately who fears him properly. Imagine visiting a friend's house as a child. And in the course of your play, your friend's father calls from the other room. Immediately, your friend drops his Lego robot, ignores that it breaks into 23 pieces, and runs out of the room, calling back to his father eagerly, Coming, Daddy! I have a question. Why would your friend run? I mean, he's already obeying. Even if he calmly sets down his toy and walks in the direction of his father, he's obeying. He runs because he knows what his father expects. And he's afraid of displeasing him. Or, I'd rather put it positively, he badly wants to please his father. So I could ask, whose displeasure am I afraid of today? And do I see my obedience from this perspective? That the Lord is pleased when I obey even earthly authorities. Again, to put it positively, whose heart are you after today? And do you understand what the Father expects when he calls? The gospel transforms obedience. Next, Paul shows how the gospel transforms work. Verses 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. In verse 23, it's abundantly clear that Paul is keying off of 317. As I read earlier, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And as we have said, he's taking these truths and explicitly applying them to bondservants who were members in the Colossian church. And here Paul takes this instruction and uses it to redefine the ambition of work, even in the context of slavery. Now, as ambition goes, a slave probably sets his sights on self-preservation and on eventual earthly freedom. But beyond that, understandably, little gets planned. In his book, TechWise Family, writer Andy Crouch makes a helpful distinction between toil and work. He writes, Think of toil as excessive, endless, fruitless labor, the kind that leaves us exhausted, with nothing valuable to show for our effort. 
This is, alas, the kind of work that many people in our world must do their whole lives. And he's not talking about slaves. Think of Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall, working the garden, working the garden, and enjoying the quite literal fruitfulness of their efforts. Every activity was filled with tangible purpose. Every exertion fulfilled its goal. After the fall, however, God told Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. In other words, they were left with toil. For sure, even in our redemption, we suffer the consequences of the fall. You can check out my various attempts to get vegetation to grow properly in my front yard if you want proof. But if we know that we are serving the Lord, our ambition can be fruitfulness again. We can trust that our work done in obedience to the Lord will not be without purpose ever. Even if we're serving the Lord by obeying the wishes of an earthly master. But if you have a sense of fulfillment at work already, but it's because you're on track for your five-year plan, or because you have lots of upward mobility, or even because you're helping people, making the world a better place, all of these things are good. But the slave who serves the Lord, knows richer fulfillment than the Fortune 500 CEO who serves no one. The gospel transforms the ambition of work. And the gospel transforms the wages of work. It turns a slave's debt into a child's inheritance. It's profoundly meaningful for anyone who was a slave to sin. There, we we brought slave to sin into it. An enemy of the Lord. Anyone who's wandering in darkness, without hope, without God. For anyone to hear and enjoy the truth of chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption from slavery, the forgiveness of sins. But how much more significant is it for those who are in the extreme situation of not just spiritual slavery, but also earthly slavery? Slaves according to the basic nature of the system, work without reward. If they were paid, which is unlikely, it would have been something like a meager allowance. Paul explains, in effect, since slaves work for the Lord, their wages are from the Lord. If you work for the Lord, your wages are from the Lord. And what are the wages of a bondservant of the Lord. Well, the household is exclusively a family business in the kingdom of God. And the wages, therefore, are the inheritance of a child of the king. Not only that, these wages are certain, inflexible, unaffected by inflation, They are promised by the Lord. In fact, these are the only wages that have eternal value. Do you see that this is yet another expression of freedom for slaves and for us? Freedom from the bondage of seeking earthly reward. What reward are you after? What reward am I after? What earthly treasure could compare to receiving the kingdom of light? as a child of God. But again, this promise cuts both ways. 
Listen to verse 25. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Well, this is an interesting addition, isn't it? The promise of reward is balanced by a warning that wrongdoing will likewise receive its wages. Let's take a moment and appreciate that how stunning this statement is. There is no partiality in addressing slaves. It's stunning. We miss it. This statement is, even in spite of that, this statement is surprising. It, it calls back to the fear of the Lord in verse 22, for example, but certainly has more a sense of warning to it. If you're worried that your earthly masters will punish you for wrongdoing, remember that you answer to the Lord. And remember that they, too, answer to the Lord. I don't think it's any accident that this word of warning falls immediately before Paul turns to address masters. Strictly speaking, it appears Paul is addressing slaves in this verse. And he clearly makes this warning, I think, to slaves and masters. Verse 25 turns out to be a word for both and for everyone in between. There is no partiality. has a lot of blunt weight. And it implies that even the rest of the instructions for slaves have broader application for us. There is no partiality. The result is that serving the Lord amounts to a caution and a comfort. Don't fear the wrongdoer. Even if that wrongdoer is your master, the Lord will repay. Fear being the wrongdoer and facing the discipline of the Lord. And on that note of warning, we arrive at Paul's brief word for masters showing now how the gospel transforms authority. We've made it to chapter four, everybody. Yay! Here's just the first verse. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master, a Lord in heaven. We may notice that Paul has proportionately less to say to masters. But we must realize that not only has Paul already named earthly masters, he has already communicated a whole lot to masters in the way that he has addressed slaves, even in the fact that he has addressed slaves. And what Paul does say to masters, namely, you also have a master in heaven, now puts masters unambiguously on equal footing with slaves, you see. That little expression, you also, does a lot of work. Everything that Paul has already said about the context of a slave's obedience gets loaded into this verse to masters. He says, Though you may seem different to the world, you are really in the same position with respect to the Lord above. As much as we struggle with even hearing this passage about slavery, those who would have been most offended, most troubled, would have been the masters in the room. Christ is all and in all, and we are all slaves we also have a master in heaven, and that is good news. So how does the gospel transform the authority of masters? I would say by revealing the purpose of authority. While proclaiming how the gospel transforms everything, Paul nevertheless acknowledges a worldly power structure and then radically reinterprets the purpose. The master 
is responsible not only to acknowledge the slave's rights, you see, but he's responsible to uphold those rights before God. Now, it's, it's safe to say that justice and fair treatment haven't ever been the standard of earthly slave masters or earthly leaders, for that matter. And the application of this teaching obviously now extends far beyond the context of slavery. Listen, the burden of protection rather than the luxury of exploitation falls on those in power, especially if they can expect obedience from those under them. All who find themselves in positions of authority are responsible, listen, to serve those they command. From households and communities to businesses and schools and other social groups, this is the gospel statement on power structures. The master must be servant to the slave, upholding justice and protecting from unfair treatment, especially from the master himself. And the judge of justice is not the earthly master, but the master in heaven. This is radical. The gospel transforms authority by redefining the purpose of authority and by revealing the ideal model of authority. As Jesus said, in Philipp- as Paul wrote in Philippians 2, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant." a slave even, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The journey of Christ from the throne of heaven to the cross was infinitely farther than the journey of a master to serve a slave. Christ the Lord took on the form of a servant. The Son of Man came to serve. By calling masters, by calling anyone who has authority, even slaves for that matter, to, ser- to live a life of service to the Lord, He's calling masters to be like him. He's calling us to be like him. To practice injustice, greed, exploitation of any kind from any leadership position is to be decidedly unchristlike. So, returning to our discussion of why Paul wouldn't call for an end to slavery, I have a question. How do you treat a piece of property justly, fairly? What does it mean when Paul insists that slaves must be treated according to the justice of God? What I'm saying is, I wonder what of our concept of slavery, what elements could possibly remain in light of chapter 4, verse 1? I wonder what elements of first century slavery could possibly remain in light of chapter 4, verse 1. It's one thing to say that slavery is an indefensible institution. True. It's another thing to say, even if that circumstance or system or even a person takes away your everything and leaves you as a have-not and a nobody, the gospel declares otherwise. We must consider how 
we can properly oppose dehumanizing institutions like slavery, human trafficking, other forms of exploitation. But realize what Paul has done is make more explicit the basis of our absolute disagreement with any system that calls one human less than another. But that also means that we have some heart searching to do. Because the principles of slavery, whether a false sense of inferiority or of superiority, is a condition of human nature. And so instead of patting myself on the back for being a part of a culture that calls slavery categorically evil, I need to listen to the word and admit that I categorize others as less important, even insignificant. When the most marginalized and disenfranchised and dispossessed people are more valuable and significant as image bearers of God than any earthly benefit that they represent to me. Let's pray together. Lord, as we prepare to take this meal together, give us a true sense of the significance of being the body of Christ. Give us a true desire to know you and to identify with you deeply. And especially today, Lord, comfort us with your gospel. Remind us, even as we practice remembering in this way, that you came to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. Remind us that you are building your kingdom out of the empty, the insignificant, because you yourself are our fullness and our significance. It's in your name we pray. Amen.